Welcome to Scam This. You've probably seen headlines about several governors sending migrants to places like Martha's Vineyard and VP Kamala Harris's house in Washington, D.C. This has caused legal and political controversy. So we're going to cut through the noise and figure out what's actually going on at the U.S. southern border. The numbers are high, but the numbers don't really reflect everything that is happening at the border. Also on the show, attention true crime fans. There's been a major development in one of the biggest true crime stories in the past 10 years. We'll skim the case in a minute and why it's suddenly back in the headlines. And to close things out, the world said one final farewell to Queen Elizabeth II this week. We'll break down the most memorable moments of the funeral and what's to come from King Charles and his slim down monarchy. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. Moments ago, the Fed uh, releasing another interest rate increase at the three quarters of a percentage point. The Federal Reserve is back, 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 back again with yet another interest rate hike. And this time, it's a three-quarter point raise. This is the fifth time the Fed has raised rates in 2022. And over the course of the year, interest rates have gone from just about 0% to 3 to 3.25%. And that's not all. The Fed is expected to raise rates to as high as 4% or more by the end of the year. And they've said we should expect interest rates to stay high until at least 2024. If you're wondering why do they keep raising rates, well, it's to try to curb inflation, which is still hovering over 8%. And so far, the Fed's rate hikes haven't done much to bring that number down. As for what this latest rate hike means for your wallet, basically, it's now even more expensive to use lines of credit. Think mortgages, car loans, and credit cards. And if you have expensive debt, you'll want to pay that down ASAP. For our next headline, let's head down to the Caribbean, where this year's first big Atlantic hurricane caused some major damage. The governor of Puerto Rico describes the damage from Hurricane Fiona as catastrophic, with more than 18 hours of torrential rain. Over the weekend, Hurricane Fiona made landfall on the island of Puerto Rico, dumping up to 20 inches of rain between Sunday and Monday and knocking out power to the entire island. About a thousand people had to be rescued, and as of Thursday, nearly a million people were still without power. If this story is giving you deja vu, you're not alone. Hurricane Fiona struck Puerto Rico just after the five-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria. Reminder, in 2017, Hurricane Maria caused months-long power outages for the island, and residents are still struggling to live with an outdated power grid that can't handle these types of storms. There had been numerous delays in modernizing the electric system, and people had been sounding the alarm before this latest hurricane hit that Puerto Rico's grid seemed likely to fail. On Wednesday, President Biden approved a disaster declaration for Puerto Rico, clearing the way for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, aka FEMA, to assess the damage. Top officials from FEMA arrived in Puerto Rico on Tuesday to start evaluating the situation, but officials say estimates on the cost of damages will take time to finalize. 
while nearly one-third of the island is still left in the dark. For our next headline, let's get to a surprising medical announcement that came this week. It's not your imagination. Anxiety is on the rise with so many people. Now, a U.S. task force is recommending that most adults get screened to check for mental health problems. That's right. Experts are now encouraging routine screening for anxiety. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which is a volunteer group of health experts, plays a key role in influencing what preventative services should be covered by insurance. And on Tuesday, the task force put out their draft recommendations, suggesting that primary care physicians screen adults ages 19 to 64 for anxiety during routine visits, even if they're not showing symptoms. So what prompted this announcement? Simply put, a rise in anxiety. And we'll point out, anxiety particularly affects women. About 40% of U.S. women have anxiety disorders, and about 1 in 10 pregnant and postpartum women report experiencing anxiety. Not to mention, primary care physicians often don't recognize these types of disorders, which can contribute to a decades-long delay in getting treatment for them. As for what's changing at your next doctor's visit, well, your annual checkup might include a few more questions, because even short questionnaires can help ID anxiety disorders. Another thing to know is that most insurance companies will cover preventative services recommended by the task force, which might include psychotherapy and antidepressant or anti-anxiety medications. But while that all sounds like good news, some doctors worry that adding anxiety screenings could further strain mental health providers who are already struggling to meet patient demand. Our final headline takes us to Iran, where protests have been underway all week. Anti-government protests have swept across Iran in reaction to the death of a 22-year-old woman in the custody of the regime's morality police. Anti-government protests broke out in cities across Iran following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She died after she was arrested by Tehran's morality police last week, reportedly for not following the country's hijab rules. Iran says she died of a heart attack, while her family and eyewitnesses say the police beat her in a van and she later fell into a coma. In the days since, thousands have turned out across the country to protest the Iranian regime. Human rights groups say the protests have turned deadly, with seven people killed and hundreds more reportedly injured. Iranian officials have confirmed three deaths. Now, as the protests enter their sixth day, they show no sign of slowing down. These are apparently the boldest and most daring protests in Iran in years. And the police are trying to crack down, apparently using water cannons, tear gas, and batons to do so. Plus, there have been reports that internet and cell service is down in areas where the protests are taking place. And access to certain social media has been restricted. And today, the U.S. Treasury Department announced sanctions against Iran's morality police and called on the Iranian government to end violence against women. For our OG podcast listeners out there, remember this one?
This is from season one of the podcast Serial, the massively popular 2014 show about Adnan Syed, a Maryland teenager who was convicted of murdering his ex-girlfriend more than 20 years ago. While Serial made podcasting cool and kicked off a true crime boom, it also raised questions about whether or not Syed, who'd always said he was innocent, was wrongfully convicted. And this week, decades after Syed was first sent to jail and eight years since Serial dropped in our feeds, a judge in Baltimore has overturned Syed's conviction and released him from prison. Today, we're breaking down the Syed case and why he's walking free for now in 60 seconds. Adnan Syed was just 18 years old when he was sentenced to life in prison in the year 2000, after a jury found him guilty of killing his ex-girlfriend, Hay Min Lee. More than a decade later, reporter Sarah Koenig dug into Syed's story on Serial. She poked holes in the prosecutor's evidence, the sketchy cell phone records they relied on, and even got into how Syed's own lawyer failed him. And the show was a huge success. Serial sparked dinner table debates and basically launched the true crime genre of podcasts. It also helped kick off years of legal battles. And last week, prosecutors asked for a new trial for Syed. They claim there's new and undisclosed evidence on two other suspects. And they also agree that the prosecutors in the OG trial used unreliable data from a cell tower, which was used to pin the crime to Syed. And on Monday, a Baltimore judge shocked the country by giving the green light to their request for a new trial and vacating Syed's murder conviction. Syed was released from prison soon after. But not everyone was celebrating. Members of Heyman Lee's family said they felt betrayed by the judge's decision to open up a new trial, with Lee's brother saying it's been a never-ending nightmare for 20-plus years. We should also note that just because the conviction was overturned doesn't mean Syed won't be found guilty in a future trial. Prosecutors have 30 days to decide whether to drop charges against him completely or to start a new trial against him. So for all the podcast fans out there, get your AirPods ready, because a new true crime podcast is probably in the making. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. By now, you've probably heard about the planes full of migrants that landed in Martha's Vineyard last week. But that wasn't an isolated incident. Buses and planes of migrants have been arriving unannounced in cities like Washington, D.C., Chicago, and New York City. To dig deeper on exactly what is going on here, we called up Christy DePena, the Vice President for Policy and Director of Immigration at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. We should understand firsthand the desire of people who want a better life. People are always going to move. We know that to get to the United States, is it's incredibly dangerous. A lot of folks are moving on foot. We're seeing a pretty staggering change in the folks that are arriving on the southern border. 
And that change has prompted some governors to take action. Republican governors from Texas, Florida, and Arizona have been chartering buses and now planes to drop off new asylum seekers in sanctuary cities around the country. And quick reminder here, sanctuary cities and counties have policies that protect undocumented immigrants from ICE deportation efforts. The three biggest U.S. metro areas, New York, L.A., and Chicago, all have some sanctuary policies. And most sanctuary cities are run by Democrats. One of the governors who's been chartering these flights is Florida's Ron DeSantis. And he said that the cities that want to have broad immigration policies, like sanctuary cities, should be the ones to provide resources for migrants, not the states that are closer to the border. But while these governors are crying border crisis, DePena told us that moving migrants to places without the right resources to support them is a move right out of a familiar political playbook. It harkens back in my mind to states busing their homeless in and out of big cities, which is a practice that many states, both blue and red states, have been doing for a long time. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people. There's a lot of infrastructure pressure on the towns on the southern border. There is a longstanding process of moving them away to cities where they have access to an immigration court, asylum officers, ICE, and other resources. And of course, the most important aspect of that is that we give those cities notice when we are moving migrants to those cities. In these most recent situations, the destination cities weren't given a heads up. We should also note, even though this has been dominating the headlines recently, it's been happening all year. In total, Texas and Arizona have transported around 13,000 migrants to cities led by Democrats on more than 300 buses over the past year, according to CBS News. And the mayors of both Washington, D.C. and New York City have said that the influx of migrants is putting a strain on the shelter systems and resources they currently have in place. So while moving migrants is a political move, it also has real health and social consequences for the people being relocated. Not to mention, it's also legally questionable. In fact, this week, a Texas sheriff opened a criminal investigation into the flights that took migrants to Martha's Vineyard, saying it's clear many of them were lured away from Texas to score political points. And those migrants, who are now sheltered at an army base on Cape Cod, filed a lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis and other Florida officials who orchestrated the flights out of Texas. In the suit, they say they boarded the planes after officials promised immigration assistance, work opportunities, and education for children in the group, a claim that could legally be considered misleading or worse. The fact that we are even having a national conversation about whether or not governors of U.S. states may or may not have violated human trafficking laws, at the very least, is not a good look. But regardless of the political and legal circus here, these recent relocations have shined a spotlight on what's going on at the border. I think that they are drawing some important attention to the fact that these border states do bear the lion's share of responsibility when they are dealing with migrants. I mean, it is just a fact of geography, right? That said, it also kind of opens the door to some of these conversations about what kind of federal support they're receiving, whether it's enough, whether we need to go back and think through if they need more, if they need different kinds of resources, that's an important conversation to have. 
DePena told us there's a lot happening at the U.S. southern border that's worth paying attention to. So we wanted to skim that, and not the political headlines, by answering three questions. One, what's actually going on at the border? Two, is this considered a border crisis? And three, what is the government's role here? Let's start with that first question and level set about what's going on at the U.S. southern border. And that means we're going to need to use some stats. Over the past 11 months, Border Patrol said there were a record 2 million encounters at the border, which includes arrests and detentions. We've also seen an influx in migrants from Venezuela, those numbers nearly tripling from the last year, and a surge in migrants from Cuba and Nicaragua. So we asked Depeña, what context do we need to know here? And what's driving this influx? The numbers are high, but the numbers don't really reflect everything that is happening at the border. And yes, a lot of them are repeat encounters impacting the number of times people are seeking to enter the United States, which is upping that number. I also don't want to say that those numbers aren't big. They are big. We are seeing a lot of new people coming from a different part of the world. Right now, Venezuela is now the second largest external displacement crisis in the world. There are widespread humanitarian rights abuses. We've heard of incidents of torture, sexual assault. Their economy is in the garbage can. And people are starving there. On average, Venezuelans are losing about 25 pounds a year. They are desperate for some kind of protection. And they've been fleeing to the surrounding countries for a while now. In Cuba, there has been, again, another really steep economic downturn. I saw a figure the other day that said a piece of fruit now costs 1,000% more than last year. So they're saying that this is the worst economic crisis in Cuba in 30 years. Inflation is at somewhere in the neighborhood of 30%. More Cubans are fleeing now than we saw in both the 1980 and the 1994 crises combined. Basically, these migrants are fleeing incredibly difficult economic situations and tough governments, which is what has usually driven an uptick in people arriving at the border. So that's nothing new. What's different now is that we're seeing larger numbers coming from different countries. The number of people arriving from the Mexican border who are from Venezuela, Cuba, or Nicaragua is about to surpass the combined total of folks coming from Mexico, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and Salvadorans, which is a pretty remarkable shift from what we've seen even in the past 15 years or so. And that brings us to our second question. Is this a border crisis like some of those governors are saying? To me, when I think of a crisis, I'm thinking about some kind of emergent circumstance here. And although the scale of this is such that I do think that it warrants immediate attention, I think that it has been going on so long, it's sort of disingenuous to call it a crisis. The other reason that I, I hesitate to call it a crisis is that there is absolutely no question in my mind that the United States is capable of standing up an efficient and effective and humane process for better receiving and processing folks that are applying for asylum. It is definitely a solvable problem. It's just about really getting the right folks to come to the table and recognize that no one is really winning anymore from 
politicizing this issue and making it extraordinarily partisan. And at some point, we actually have to think about the policy solutions behind what we want to do. So depending on who you ask, this is also a humanitarian crisis and a policy crisis. Which gets us to our third question. What exactly is the U.S. government doing at the border? And has anything changed since President Biden took over? The Trump administration was incredibly effective at bringing down a lot of immigration policy that they didn't support. And truthfully, the dismantling of our refugee, our humanitarian processing internationally has had ramifications for what is happening on our southern border. And it's taken years to spin that back up. I would argue that the Biden administration hasn't done that much different. But I do think that the sort of shining moment for this administration has really been their response to Afghans and certainly the response to the Uniting for Ukraine program. And I would like to see the administration really get behind the success that we've seen so far with Uniting for Ukraine and expand that into a place like Venezuela. As a quick skim, the Uniting for Ukraine program is a new initiative that allows Ukrainian citizens and their families to seek temporary shelter in the U.S. for a two-year period. That's a program Depeña hopes can be expanded to people from other countries. In addition to revising programs for refugees of war, the Biden administration has also attempted to dismantle a policy called Title 42 which was from the Trump era, and it allowed Border Patrol officers to turn away asylum seekers for public health reasons. If Team Biden got their wish and Title 42 was dissolved, it would have increased the number of migrants who could seek asylum in the U.S. But in May, a federal judge blocked the White House from lifting the restriction. And that legal battle around Title 42 is just one example of what DePena called a broader shift in the way immigration policy is made and enforced in the United States. One of the things that really came out of the Trump administration is the fact that states have really begun to file a lot more cases on immigration than they've ever done before, depending on the administration that either does or doesn't benefit immigrants. But it certainly is having an impact on how we make policy as a country. Because of this congressional gridlock that everyone talks about all the time, we've seen the development of immigration policy by way of the executive. We have really just shifted the responsibility of writing immigration policy from Congress, where it should live, to the executive and the judicial branches. That, I think, has just really stymied any movement and really any pressure on Congress to do something on immigration because they can just sort of sit back and say, well, we got to wait for the Supreme Court to rule on X, Y, or Z issue. But on Monday, the tides did shift slightly. Congress passed a rare immigration law, directing the Labor Department to study the obstacles immigrants face as they enter the skilled labor market. And that directive is giving DePena hope about the future of immigration policy. I think that offers a teeny glimmer of hope that there is just so much value in bringing in immigrants from other places. And we just have to continually remind ourselves that we are made better by those people. I hope that the folks that are coming to the United States recognize that 
everything that they see on the news is not reflected in every American that they meet. People that are receiving and welcoming aren't just Democrats and they're not just Republicans and they don't just live in cities. It gives us a little hope for what we can be moving forward. Eleven days after her passing, Queen Elizabeth II was laid to rest on Monday at Windsor Palace. London was quiet, as basically the entire economy shut down to mourn her. Monday was declared a bank holiday. Shops closed their doors, hospital appointments were canceled, and even London's stock exchange piped down. And while not everyone was happy about that, Brits gathered in the city to say goodbye, and millions of others tuned in around the world to watch the funeral proceedings. Her late majesty famously declared on a 21st birthday broadcast that her whole life would be dedicated to serving the nation and Commonwealth. To hear more about the funeral that was fit for a queen, we called up Aaron Vanderhoof, staff writer at Vanity Fair and co-host of Dynasty, a podcast about the royal family. To start us off, we asked how this funeral compared to other royal funerals of the past. The queen actually did plan almost every single element down to the bagpiper about 20 years ago. This was the first time that certain elements of the funeral had ever been televised. Social media and TV, but especially social media, made it much more of a vehicle for people to kind of participate. It's less a show of Britain's power or its traditions, so much as it an invitation for people around the world to reflect on what the monarchy meant to this country and what the queen meant to people around the world. And because it's 2022, people were able to chime in on social media and point out their favorite moments from the ceremony. Of course, I loved the solitary bagpiper at the end of the Windsor service of committal. There's something really haunting about it, but also a little cheeky. That was something that the queen herself actually wanted. And I thought that it was a nice gesture to her love of Scotland, Scottish culture. The queen didn't want the ceremony to be too long or boring. Princess Charlotte and Prince George, them getting to participate. There was a hilarious little clip of Charlotte nudging George and reminding him that it was time to bow. And she wore a hat for the first time, like an official capacity, which is, you know, something she'll probably be doing for the rest of her life. And even though it was a funeral, some royals didn't miss the opportunity to serve some looks. Kate, now the Princess of Wales, and Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, they both wore outfits that were references to things that they'd worn in the past. Megan, especially in that Dior hat, she wore a really similar white one at the service of Thanksgiving at the Platinum Jubilee. For Kate, she was wearing a beautiful pearl necklace with a beautiful amulet on the clasp. And it's one that both the Queen wore various events in her life and Princess Diana wore. Kate has really been getting ready to both step into the role of being the Princess of Wales and at the same time understanding that she wants to do it her own way. She's got her own issues. She's got her own style. She's not trying to she's not trying to become the new Princess Diana. We should point out, 
Monday wasn't all about pomp and circumstance. Some people called out the monarchy for closing down the UK's economy, saying the country's economy was already in a rough patch before things shut down. Others were frustrated over losing access to their health care on Monday. And the Queen's death also brought up conversations about the impacts of British colonialism and inspired some protests. But those conversations have also helped bring Brits together as they reflect on their country's past and its future. In the days leading up to the funeral, a quarter million people waited to see the Queen's coffin, some for up to 15 hours. And while they waited, it gave them time to just talk openly with each other about the monarchy. Waiting in that line, waiting with a bunch of other people around you. After years of COVID, when everybody's been grieving separately, I think that the queue, as they call it, was really a good opportunity for people to come together and think about everything that they've lost, think about the things that are hard, and how they're going to move forward. As for what's to come, well, you've probably heard the royalty that King Charles wants to slim down the monarchy. So what does that actually mean? Vanderhoof told us, basically, the monarchy is going to cut back how many people are involved in royal duties, recheck its budget, kind of like the rest of us, and start running more like a business. For centuries, there has been this expectation that the cousins and the nieces and nephews, they're a part of the royal apparatus that's keeping everything going. You know, when people want charity appearances, they are part of it. They have different interests that they follow. Charles, from the very beginning, has said, like, that's really not going to be my thing. He wants the people who are in the family to be working and committed. So the slim down monarchy is kind of like putting the monarchy on a good foot. It's, it's very clear that he's going to be a transitional monarchy. He's not going to be on the throne for 70 years. And that has some people saying, why slim things down when you can just get rid of the monarchy altogether? But Vanderhoof says the Windsors are well aware that in order to keep this thing going, they've got to be on their best behavior with the public and represent the future of Britain. It's a matter of figuring out how to balance the glitz and the glamour and the drama with the fact that it's still a constitutional role that has certain duties. And what happens next, I think, is really, it's really up to the people, as it always has been. And I think that more so than most, the Windsors really understand that. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.